0: Hey, this is Scott. Thanks for checking out the podcast of Grace Fellowship Church. Hope it's encouraging for you and helps you take your next steps in your faith journey. Enjoy. Well, this weekend we're wrapping up our series called Thankful. We're talking about gratitude, talking about thankfulness, but even more than that, what we're trying to hone in on is this, this idea of contentment. Not just I'm grateful for what's in the past, but as I move into the future, I want to have a heart that's content. What does that mean? Well, we've been defining it this way, that contentment is accepting and finding satisfaction with your situation or your lot in life. Wouldn't that be lovely? Don't we want that in life? To be be contented, to be satisfied with what we have, with our lot in life? Something I want. This weekend, I want to have kind of our final conversation to talk about worry. Worry. That worry is a contentment killer. Worry is a contentment killer. Many times when I'm struggling with contentment, it's not because I want more or I don't have enough. It's just that I'm worried about stuff. My mind is thinking about something else. It's not that I I want more. It's not a greediness. It's just that worry steals my joy. It steals my contentment. And the thing is, there's, there's no lack of things that can cause us to worry Like, open up the headlines, there's always a fresh emergency, something going on that just takes our hearts to this place of worry, and I I would like to think that somehow with this chapter that we're in as a culture, as a globe, that it's unique, but I bet you if you were to travel back 100 or 150 or 200 or 250 years, and you ask them... Are there things that you're worrying about when you look at the world around you? They would all probably violently shake their heads up and down with everything that's happening to them. So I feel like this is a message that God has been asking me to bring to the church body for a while here, in part because it's a journey that he's taken me through but also just because I've had so many conversations with people and I know the challenges that we're up against and the way that we filter through and understand the world and how it's going on around us. And I think it's something that God wants us to talk about. And even as as I bring up this word worry, some of you might be thinking, man, I, you know what? I think, I feel like you're talking to me already. Like, I just want to tell you, like, if you feel throughout the rest of the evening that somehow I'm talking directly to you or I'm singling you out, I am not. I'm not. I'm not talking to any one individual in particular, but to all of us in principle, because it's something that we all deal with. And if you feel that, that you're being spoken to, it's probably God's Spirit that's doing something inside of you. As we begin, here's the question that I want to consider What's your relationship with worry? What's your relationship with worry? Are you like one of those occasional, uh, you know, like every once in a while? Who doesn't, who doesn't get a little worried, you know, if they have this test that they need to take or, or what's going to happen in this situation? Those are normal worries, and that may be you. But then there are some seasons of life for many, and, and they would say, you know, I really struggle with worry. I really struggle with worry. You might raise your hand and say, I'm a world-class worrier. I have people that I'm related to that are world-class warriors. They can find a way of finding anything to worry about, no matter what happens. Maybe worry for you isn't something that happens occasionally. but Maybe worry is one of those things that kind of controls the course of your life and the decisions that you make. More than you really want it to. Worry is that thing that you feel when you're up at 3 a.m. because your bladder and your mind are like influenced by the devil and you just can't fall asleep again and you're just churning through all the things that are going on in your life and you try to slow the wheel down, but it just never slows down. And it feels like there's a spin cycle happening, like garments being tossed around by a dryer of just all of these things that you, even when it's like, it's like it's not even like if I just thought about it, then I could work out the conclusion and let it go. That's not what happens. You just keep playing it over and over again. You spin it from a slightly different angle, trying to come up with some relief for worry. And, and you spend all night thinking about that project that's due. Or worse, this is what happens. You know you have to get up early in the morning and you worry about sleeping in. And so at like 3 in the morning, you just, you're up because you don't want to miss it, right? And you're like, I needed that sleep, right? Worry is something that we deal with. We worry about health. We worry about the health and the pandemic. We worry about the future of our kids and our country. And what are they going to have to walk into like a moral climate for their lives? Or I think about not just my kids because they're kind of at that stage already. But what about their kids? What are they going to have to live with? We worry about our finances. How am I gonna make payment on these bills? I mean, the prices have already gone up. What if they keep going up? I'm having a hard time right now paying for things. How am I gonna deal with it when it gets even harder? We worry about family members that seem to just keep taking this nosedive into addiction beha- addictive behaviors and like these patterns of life. We worry about the tasks that we have to do tomorrow and the, and the day after that. And, and I worry that, you know what, what's inside of me is not going to be strong enough to deal with all of these things that are happening to me. And am I going to be able to persist throughout all of this? Worry is this spin cycle. It's circular And in many ways what it does is it holds our thoughts and our emotions hostage we're trying to deal with other things in life, but it's like my brain is split. I'm thinking about these other things that are happening, preoccupied with them. I'm trying to be present with my spouse or my kids, but I'm just thinking about that project that needs to be finished. I'm thinking about that test that's coming up. I'm thinking about all of my list of things to get done before we can go on vacation or before my mom comes over to the house. And I find it hard to be 100% present with people because worry has taken my mind, has split it in half, and has Held me hostage. It splits my attention. In fact, the Greek word that is the root of it is translated into worry. It means to divide and separate. To divide and to separate. I I actually appreciate that meaning because when I'm in a state of worry, I feel like there's a part of me that's divided. I feel like there's a part of me that's not present. My body might be there, but my soul and my heart are somewhere else because I'm thinking about something else and you know this there's all sorts of research on the on the topic all sorts of scientific research on the topic of stress and anxiety and worry that it actually can kill you it's known as the silent assassin stress and worry along with anxiety can cause a person's heart to create blood clots one doctor says keeps the person's blood from flowing properly It can lead to heart disease and to someone having a heart attack. It's one of the leading causes of high blood pressure, heart disease, ulcers, stomach problems, panic disorders, headaches, sleep disorders, and chronic depression. And even as I say all of this, some of you are thinking this, that sounds terrible. I should stop worrying. I'm worrying too much. I wish I wouldn't worry so much. And you start to worry about the fact that you're worrying about Worrying because you get stuck in that spin cycle. That's why, that's why it will never work just to say, hey, stop worrying. You know, Bobby McFerrin, don't worry, be happy. It doesn't work, because the moment you tell someone stop worrying, it's like saying don't think about the purple elephant in the middle of the room. It doesn't work. It just spins up the cycle further. And when someone tells me, hey, don't worry, there are times if I'm honest, I just kind of want to smack them, like in Jesus' name, like, no, knock knock it off. The, the, The problem with worry is that it competes to control our lives. It controls our thoughts, which controls Our actions and it becomes the filter through which we engage with the world. And maybe for a moment we can turn it off, like to to tackle that interview or hang out with that friend, but it's right back there and it competes to control with our lives. So my goal is not to tell you today, hey, knock it off, stop worrying, because it's not going to work, right? And it's honestly a little insulting, (laughs) And even as I talk about it, I just want to say, like I don't want to treat worry, anxiety, stress in some trite kind of way That because there are serious mental uh, health situations wrapped up with stress and anxiety that need medical attention. That's a serious and legit thing. I don't want to treat it in a cavalier way. But as we talk about worry, it's not enough just to say don't do it, but what we can do is we can learn some things that can help us say this to worry. Worry, you might be in my life, but worry, you're not going to be the boss of me. I'm not going to let you control me. You're trying to protect me from something, but I'm not going to let you be the boss of me. What we do know is that we're not the only ones that struggle with worry, that, that the people that were around Jesus when he was in his ministry struggled with worry as well. As Jesus started out his ministry in Matthew chapter 5 and Matthew chapter 6, he's working with a group full of people who are really exploring what does it mean to be in the kingdom of God and who is this person who might be the Messiah. And Jesus starts explaining to them what the kingdom of God actually looks like. And I just picture him looking over a group of people and they had a a serious stack of challenges in front of them as well. They were poor. They didn't know where their next next meal was going to come from. They were being taxed from an unjust government, and they had no way to protest. They had no representation with that government. They were being led by religious, hypocritical leaders. They had been sold out to Rome. They had their wealth stolen from them. There was no justice for them. Their children were being confused and influenced by Roman and Greek values, and so this culture where their traditions would have been so important to them, they would have been very concerned about that. They would have felt abandoned by God. God, where are you? You've been silent for 400 years. There's no Messiah. God, where are your promises? Why aren't you present? And so Jesus then steps into that space looking at these group of very needy people, and he would speak to them, and he would speak to us these words, and it almost seems audacious when he says them. In Matthew chapter 6, this is what he says. He says, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about life. He's looking at these people, all of these challenges. He says, If you're going to understand the kingdom of God, you've got to understand this. Don't worry about life. Now, just for some passage kind of context here, what's going on. He's describing to them someone who is a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And we spent quite a bit of time going through the Beatitudes earlier this year. That's all available online for free and on the app. right? What it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. If you're going to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, that you're going to have an eternal Perspective That you're not going to live just for these 80 years here on this earth because that's gone like this. But you're going to live for the 80 million years ahead into eternity. And it's interesting to do this. Right before this passage, what he did was he focused on money. He knew if he could get them to to, to think eternally about their money that everything else would follow. For this reason, for this reason, he says, we're not supposed to think it, um temporally, we're supposed to think eternally, and he says, don't be worried about your needs. Don't be anxious. Don't be fearful about the unknown. Don't let these things consume your thoughts. Divide your heart. Divide your emotions. That. That, that, you, you know, you, you think you're going through the situation and you think you got control of it because you're worried, but in reality, the worry has control of you. Jesus says, if you're going to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, that you're going to have an eternal perspective, and so you're not going to let worry steal your joy or rob you of your contentment. Now, when Jesus says that, it feels audacious, but I want to be clear about something. Jesus is not making a call for irresponsibility. He, he's not saying, don't worry, be happy. He, you don't see Jesus living his life that way. Just happy-go-lucky, nothing really matters. He was a carpenter. He probably worked really, really hard and diligently. He cared deeply about pain. He cared deeply about suffering, about those around him. And, and, and he even had a holy discontent. When he saw something that was out of alignment, he would overturn the tables. As a matter of fact, there's a beautiful picture of this. When September the 11th happened, um, in, in, and in Manhattan, there's a church down there called Redeemer Presbyterian Church led by Timothy Keller. It normally has 2,000 people going to it, but that Sunday, 5,000 people attended. They had to add extra services. And the pastor, Timothy Keller, he gave a message on John 11 where Jesus came to the tomb of his friend Lazarus. The text says that when Jesus reached the tomb, it says that he was deeply moved. Keller explained, the translators are afraid. The Greek word here means to roar or to snort with anger like an animal, like a lion or the bull or a bull. So the best translation would be, bellowing with anger, he came to the tomb. So it would at least mean that his nostrils were flared with fury. He may have even been yelling because he was angry at death. He was angry at what he saw. You don't see someone that just goes, oh, well, don't worry. He was happy-go-lucky, lackadaisical about it. He felt deeply. He took action. He was concerned. So it's not that Jesus is being dismissive about realities in life or he's calling for irresponsible living. But what he does do is he immediately gives us two categories of need that we're not to be anxious about in verse 25. He says this. He says, "Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, about your body, what you will wear." Which is funny because oftentimes my wife says, "I wish you would pay more attention to what you eat and pay more attention to what you wear," right? But but he gives us these two categories. He says, first, don't be anxious about your critical needs. Your critical needs. These are things that pertain to your survival. You know, you got to eat, you got to drink. Now, maybe, maybe some of you might worry about where your food's coming from. Most, most of us, that's not a reality. For us, it's other kinds of things. It's more about our survival economically and physically. Am I going to be able to make ends meet Am I going to be able to put food on the table? Can I put good food on the table? Stuff I can actually nourish me. Will I be able to find a job that's going to pay me enough to actually live here? But then he talks about some other things, non-critical needs. Your body, what you will wear. So these are things that have to do with our appearance, maybe our reputation. Now, for some of us, we might be, we might be worried about our advancement in our company. Will there ever be opportunities for me here, or am I going to hit a glass ceiling? For others, we might be concerned about our our reputation. You know, what are they going to think about me if I'm in the same position that I was in five years ago? Have I gotten anywhere? How am I going to compare to my brother? You know, his business just keeps going up and up and up, and I just feel like I'm in the same spot I was at 10 years ago. Will I, will I get recognition for my hard work at my company? Should I keep working hard if they don't ever recognize me? It, will I get married? I mean, you know, I'm, I'm not getting any younger, you know. Is anyone gonna marry me? Will I ever get pregnant? What if I never get pregnant? Will the treatment actually work for us? Will I get into the first, my first choice for college? Because if I want to get into this program, I've got to get into this kind of school, and I've got to do it in this kind of time frame. Will I get the deal? Can we afford the house? Will I get the dress for the prom event? And Jesus asks us then this, this first question that pops out of the text, and it's so very penetrating, and it challenges both of those areas, the critical and the non-critical needs. He asks this. He says, is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? What is life all about, he asks. Whatever it's about, shouldn't that be the focus of your concern? Is, is life simply about surviving? Is it simply about looking good in the process? Or is there something more? If, if you just had those two things, if I, if I could just survive you know, and look good, I've accomplished what I need to accomplish in this life. Maybe think about it this way. If you get to the end of your life and someone says, hey, do you feel satisfied with it? Have you survived and did you look okay in the midst of all of it? Would you say, that's what I want to accomplish with my life? I'm so glad I survived. I'm so glad I had clothes on me. Jesus says, no, 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 no. When you get to the end of your life, you're going to want it to mean more than that because your life means more than that. If someone were to follow you around for a week and and listen in on your conversations and they would have access to your checkbook and maybe your credit card statement, would they conclude that your life is simply about surviving and trying to look good? Is that where your time and your focus are? Jesus would say, hey, don't don't stop short by just thinking about those kinds of things. There is more to life than what you eat. There's more to life than, than what you wear. And then I just imagine Jesus there with his disciples and they're out on this hillside and and he just stops and he points at some illustrations that are nearby him that, that maybe help us get some perspective in this conversation. He gives us two illustrations. He says in verse 26, Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns. And yet, your heavenly Father feeds them. Look, they're not worrying a little bit. And yet, their critical needs are being met. Our Heavenly Father feeds them. And it's not just their natural instincts. It's the fact that God sets up the migration patterns and the weather patterns and the seasons where the crops grow and where the worms are there. All of that comes not from their their efforts, but from God who cared for them. And he says this, are you not much more valuable than they? Because he's your Heavenly Father. He's just their creator But you're made in his image. He's particularly fond of you, so you don't need to worry. And then Jesus steps in with a question that I think would make us all pause, even if you're not sure about Jesus. This is a profound question, and it helps us when we feel tempted to to whip up that spin cycle of worry to just pause and ask this, and I think it can help us move in the direction of saying, worry, you're not the boss of me. Listen to how powerful this question is in verse 27. He says, can any of you by worrying add a single hour to your life? That's, that's a profound question. Can you, can you add anything to your life by worry? Let me ask you this when you worried, does your life get better? When, when we're up at 3 a.m. because we're thinking about the event, is our life better when we worry? Does it add anything? Does it help me live any longer? Nope. Science has already told us that. It actually shortens our life, right? Is it, is it helping me cope better? Nope. Is it helping my relationships? Not if I end up micromanaging everything my kids do because I'm worried about everything that's gonna happen to them. When we start getting pushed around, we need to ask this question. When we start spinning up that cycle, can I add anything to my life by worrying right now? Is it, is it keeping me from getting sick? Well, it might for a moment, eventually. But eventually, something's going to happen to you, some germs that are going to get exposed to you that you couldn't see coming and you couldn't make up a defense for, even if you wanted to. Here's what I know for my family. Even in the middle of the lockdown, we ended up catching random bugs. And I'm like, how did this happen? Like, we were doing our best in the middle of all of that. And it still happened to us. Worry didn't catch, didn't help us with anything. It's really interesting when you look at the original language for that phrase. Can any of you add a single hour to your life? By worrying, it it also can be translated this way. Can any of you add a cubit to your height? A cubit is a a measurement of of length. In other words, can you add another foot to your height by worrying? Now, that's funny to me because we have one person in our family that's the shortest. And and she often, you know, lives in her shortness. And I just, like, picture her, like, worrying or, like, trying really hard. Like, Like, all of a sudden would pop up and grow taller. Like, would it work? No, like just as silly as that is, it's just as silly to think that I'm gonna be able to add time to my life by worrying. It's just as crazy. Worry only kills your contentment. Worry only makes your life worse. It doesn't bring any certainty in uncertain times. Again, again, Jesus is not advocating that we be irresponsible or that we be foolish, but he is saying, hey, do the best you can and trust in me to fill in The gaps. He goes on, verse 28, and why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow, they don't labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today, and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you? So I have just a little bit of an illustration here. I was thrilled that they could even be bought in December here. But here's a, a lily. Now, this is, this is stunning, isn't it? It's beautiful. You probably smelled it and you didn't even know it was there, but you can smell it. It just fills the room with its scent and with its aroma. With no effort at all, these lilies look fantastic. Fantastic. They didn't have to be dressed up. We just put it in a vase so they didn't flop over. But other than that, they didn't have to be pruned. They didn't have to be pruned. I didn't have to paint them. I didn't have to set, I didn't have to do anything. They're beautiful on their own. Listen, God is an expert in fashion design. He had his A game on when he made this flower. And isn't it interesting that Whenever you put a flower next to another flower, it doesn't matter what it is. They all look beautiful and brilliant no matter what the arrangement is. God is an expert fashion designer. And look, some of us are so concerned with looking good in front of other people that we fail to be who God made us to be. And look, God didn't, he's not a vanilla God. He didn't mess up when he made you. He didn't hold back when he made any of you any more than he holds back when he creates the lily of the field or the lily of the valley. And to fear that somehow, you know what, God, I'm going to be too boring if I'm just myself. I have, I have to put on something other than what I am is to not understand the power and the creativity and the majesty and the greatness of who God is. You might need a good dose of the discovery channel just to turn on planet Earth and say, wow, look at what God created. Do you realize that there's flowers that look even more impressive than this that stand on the top of a mountain that no one is ever going to see? No one's ever going to applause and say, God, good job. You know why he did that? Because he's a God that loves pizzazz and he's creative and he makes things beautiful for no reason at all other than just to show his glory in his splendor. There's some fish on the bottom of the sea with a light hanging out of it that's like, "Oh my word. How did you create something so creative? Look at how that thing swims. How does that even work?" And God says, "I know. You're never even going to know it's down there. I adorn my creation with glory and with splendor, irrespective of whether or not you know it's even there, because I'm a God that loves pizzazz and I'm gratuitously good for no reason at all. You don't need to worry about your life, my my point is this: If God gives that much attention and detail to something, and you guys know this because these are beautiful now, but if you came back a week from now, they'd be wilted and probably pretty dead. If God gives that much attention to something like this that's going to be gone like that, how much more does He care for you that has an eternal life, an eternal soul? And what business do we have being worried about something like, do I have the right dress? Do I have the right kind of car? Do Do I wear the right kind of tie? Do I have enough of this stuff? And so I worry about it and I worry about it. God, I'll never have enough. That's just image stuff. And then what Jesus does is he boils it down to really the critical issue when he says this. He says, "Oh you of little faith." That ultimately the spin cycle, ultimately that worry that divides us, that worry that steers our life and keeps us from being the healthiest version of ourself, ultimately Jesus would say, "It's a faith issue. It's a trust issue. That we think that he's not interested in us, that he doesn't care, that he's not capable, that he's not powerful, that maybe I've fallen off of his agenda, that we don't trust his care and his provision for us. Now, the reason I say that this is a message that he's given me is because this is something he continually walks me through, showing me areas in my own heart where I'm stuck in a place of worry and saying, hey, you're not trusting me. You're not trusting me whether it's my children and their trajectory, or the church and its facility, or team members, or health, or whatever it may be. Scott, you're not trusting me. Even, as I said, with the church's facility, as we've been processing, and many of you know we were in the elementary school, we got kicked out of that, we're so blessed to be in here, we can't stay here forever, we're trying to find another place, and I found my heart spinning up. I was in that spin cycle. You ask Jen, I mean she would just watch it. Like I was just in that cycle of like worry and and God spoke that to me. Hey, Scott, you're not you're not trusting in me. You're not believing that I'm really gonna care for you. You're not you're not trusting me. So God had to do that work in me. And and you may not want to hear that your pastor struggles with issues of faith. But in my worry, I, I wanted to get it all worked out. I wanted to get it all figured out. I wanted to be able to pat, like chart a, a path forward in the middle of all of that because I felt like the future was uncertain, and so usually our worry is an, an attempt to control the future somehow, right? But what God spoke to me is, hey, do you, do you trust that I love the church more than you do, <laughs> and that I'm gonna care for you, or whatever the needs might be? Do you trust that, Scott? Do I trust God, and that's, that's really the fundamental question that we have to deal with, and maybe as I'm talking, I hope that you're thinking about something in your life where you might be tempted to worry about that that your spin cycle happens and that garment just keeps getting flipped over and over again, and I just want you to consider that question. Where is there disbelief for you? Where is there a lack of trust in who God is and how He loves you? And do I trust God? And then Jesus, what he does is he repeats the command in case we missed it. He says, so do not worry. He summarizes it up. Don't worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? Listen, if if we serve a God that has already faithfully cared for us and is completely capable and knowledgeable and attentive, we have no business worrying. It doesn't even make sense. And this is what he says. He says, for the pagans run after these things. The pagans run after these things. So, so pagans, many times, we would think that that's like a non-religious person, someone who doesn't believe in God, but that's not what a pagan is. A pagan is someone who believes in the gods, plural, and that they are at the whim of whatever the gods have happened with with weather or with nature or with their harvest, and so they need, they need to make sure they do the right thing in the right kind of way or they won't have enough cabbages or their sheep won't multiply enough or, or, or if, they, if that's on the good side or, or if, they're, if they're really bad, then maybe their actions will make the gods unhappy with them. And so Jesus goes at length and he says, hey, if you're a pagan, guess what you're going to do? You're going to act in such a way that you're going to try to earn my favor, that you're going to try to look good in front of other people, that you're going to worry about things, that you're going to babble and with your many words try to look spiritually impressive when you pray. And so Jesus would say, hey, these pagans, they're, they're always toiling, they're always spinning, they're always sowing, they're always storing up because they never know if their God will be pleased with them now. Hey, they, might, they might have been pleased yesterday, but what's going to happen tomorrow? I don't know. How long is that going to last? And Jesus would say, not so with you because you're not a pagan and you're not, it's not God's, you have a heavenly father that loves you. So don't spend time seeking after those things. He says, don't run after them. It's interesting. It's interesting. That that word run, it it carries with it this this idea of like frantically pursuing after something, the toiling and the churning and this energy-laden pursuit of something, running after them. Jesus says, don't run, don't churn, don't toil like the pagans do. For them, that's all that life is about and who can blame them, but Jesus would say this, for a Christian, right, for a Christian, when everyone else around us worries, when they run after things frantically, when they're spun up, we should be the people who knows that we have a heavenly Father who cares for us, who's fond of us, who, who, who cares for us even more than he cares for the lilies of the valley. You know, it, it's, it's been interesting for me to watch my children contend for resources, Um, I I am a third child. I have two older siblings. I do have a a younger brother as well. I'm three of four. And so when I was growing up, I remember those fights that would emerge for the peanut butter wafers, right? Or who would get the last bowl of cereal. And it was always like, I have to fight for this thing because I may never get it for myself. And the thing is, I see the same kind of behavior in my children. And this is usually how it shows up. Like, Like, yes, there'll be fights that emerge, but oftentimes what we'll do is we'll see like bowls in their room when we go to clean out, so they had to get the food, they had to take it to their room and like hunker down because I don't want to let anyone else get to it. Or they that rare occasion every three to six months when we do a deep clean of their room and we pull their beds away from the wall and there's like a pile of wrappers there, you know, because they said, I've got to take all of all the peanut butter wafers and just like eat them all now because I don't know if there's ever going to be enough there for me. I don't know if there's ever going to be enough What they don't know is what they're really making a statement about is what they believe about me as their father, as the provider, that there's not going to be enough for them. So they have to take it. They have to hoard it. They have to hunker down. They have to deceive. They have to manipulate. They have to fight for it. They have to churn. They have to toil. They have to spin. They have to worry about it. What I feel like telling my kids is this. You know, you don't have to act like we never have food. Like we might be out now, but I have the ability to like you know, walk across the street and go to Wise and buy some more. Like, ha- have you ever starved in your life and had to be administered to a hospital because you didn't have enough nourishment? Like, why are you fighting amongst yourself? Why are you hiding this stuff? I promise you, like, I might make you uncomfortable so you make better dietary decisions a little bit, but you're not gonna starve. You're not gonna go without. You don't have to spin. You don't have to hoard. You don't have to deceive. You don't have to manipulate. You don't have to fight amongst yourselves. There's enough. Because I'm your father, and I love you, and I'm able to provide for you. And I'm not gonna let you go hungry. I might make you eat something else, but I'm not gonna let you go hungry hungry and listen if me a limited resource earthly father feels that way about my kids how much more does a heavenly father that cares about you that owns the cattle on a thousand hillsides and the cars on a thousand lots and the cereals in a thousand wices right how much more does he love and care for you and how dare we say God you I can't trust in you So, how would our lives change if you heard God say this? When we're spinning up, when we're toiling, when we're striving, when we're running, when we're chasing after those things, if we heard God say this, hey, I know you need that, I know you need that, and I'm gonna provide for you. Will you trust me? Will you trust me? How would your life change? And then in verse 33, what Jesus does is he answers the question that he posed in verse 25 where he asked, what is life all about? What is that thing that we should really toil over and spin up and focus on? And he gives us the answer. He says this. He says, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, Don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. What is the thing that Jesus says that we're supposed to toil for, that we're supposed to labor for, that we're supposed to focus on? He would say it's the things of God, it's God's kingdom, God's righteousness, that we're supposed to be preoccupied, that we're supposed to be worried about that. It's interesting. It's actually the same kind of root of the, the Greek word that, that running, the pagans run after those things, but that had this, this idea of this energy, anxious, frustrated, toiling sort of thing. But this is a little different than that. It has this meaning of like a, a calm, assured focus to it, to concern yourself with that. So Jesus would say, Hey, rather than getting spun up about wearing the right kinds of things, would you, would you focus on building up my kingdom? Rather than worrying about, do I wear the right thing at school? Will people accept me? Jesus would say, hey, seek my kingdom first. Tell people about what it means to be a follower of Christ. Model what it means to be a kingdom liver. And I'm, and I'm going to be able I'm I'm gonna crown you with all of the the respect and adoration. Seek first my kingdom, and all these things will be added unto you. Rather than isolating and running away from people that we might be afraid of making, that were making us sick, that we should find wise and reasonable ways to engage with people for God's kingdom, and then to trust him to provide and protect you in the meanwhile. And listen, rather than worrying about my rights have been taken away, a kingdom-minded person would say, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to defend that space. I'm going to say, how can I build God's kingdom? I'm going to lay my rights down so that I can build God's kingdom on this earth. God, your kingdom come, your will be done. Instead of saying, well, hey, someday we'll have a church, and when that happens, we'll be able to live missionally and reach out to our community. Say, you know what? We don't know when that day is going to come, but we're going to follow you faithfully now, and we're going to tell Jesus about Tell people about Jesus the best way we can right now. And we're not gonna wait for that. We're gonna act on it now. We're gonna seek first his kingdom. Listen, being kingdom-minded rather than worry-minded shows tremendous faith and trust in God. That's why Jesus said the one thing that he was impressed with was when people had faith in him. So Jesus says, listen, you look after my deal and I'm gonna look after yours don't go stressed through life for something that i have responsibility for in the first place he promises us that concern myself concern yourself with my kingdom and i'll concern myself with you and caring for you can any one of you by worrying at a single hour to your life that's the challenge for you this week that maybe as you start to feel that spin, that worry cycle spin up, big ones and small ones, that you just pause, you just pause and say, today, when I begin worrying about me, I'm gonna unload that on you, God, and I'm gonna look to build your kingdom. I'm not gonna allow uncertainty to take a toll on my character and worry you're not the boss of me. Let me pray for you because I know the thoughts are easy to come by, but the victory is a battle to be engaged in. God, thank you for these people. Thank you for um, what you're doing in their hearts and in their lives. God, I just recognize that it's not easy to get freedom from worry, that it is crippling and that it occupies a lot of mental energy for some folks. I don't, I'm not downplaying that. I don't want to treat it in a cavalier way. It's a significant thing. And yet Jesus spoke with such clear terms that there's no summary I can give greater than what he has already spoken. Lord, so would you give us that kind of victory? Give us a mindfulness? God, and I pray for those who, who might be in that prison of anxiety, fear, and worry. I feel bits of that. I know most of us do. God, give them freedom. Give them victory. We pray this in the name of Christ, amen. amen. Let's stand together. I want to invite you to respond, spend some time with God. Let him do some work inside your heart as we sing a song saying, God, I'm, I know who goes before me, I know who stands behind. You're with us, God, and we can trust in you.